with me to John chapter 3. And we continue in our verse of focus, which is John 3.16. I think now more than ever, this verse is setting in completely for our time frame, for even our modern context of knowing who God is and what he has done for this world. And once again, I know that the words are familiar to you and you may have just memorized them and, and they, they, they may not mean anything anymore, but that's why we've paused here and parked for weeks already just trying to understand what this verse really entails. In John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is who our God is. And that is what Jesus Christ, God incarnate, has done for us. In God's love and goodness, He has given us a unique Son to fulfill His mission to redeem the world. It is through God's love that the world is healed that the world could come to a proper healing of itself. And so Jesus Christ, in this verse, becomes not only Lord, not only Savior, but Redeemer. Friends, that, that is what we, we come to the cross. When we do come to the cross and interpret the cross as we will do so today, we come first and foremost to that wonderful understanding of who Jesus Christ is and above all the other definitions and descriptions of Jesus. He is our Redeemer. He redeems. One of the, the, the wonderful things that I read as I studied on, on this passage was a, a saying by B.B. Warfield. And he describes the Redeemer in such a profound way. I want you to listen to this. B.B. Warfield says, and I quote, There is no one of the, not one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christians' hearts than Redeemer. There are others, it is true, which are more often on the lips of Christians. Redeemer, however, is a title of more intimate revelation than either Lord or Savior. It gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from Him, but also to our appreciation of what it cost Him to procure this salvation for us. It is, this, it is the name specifically of Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given salvation, but that He paid a mighty price for it. It is a name, therefore, which is charged with deep emotion, and it is to be found particularly in the language of devotion. End quote. 
That is a description of who we will be studying and emphasizing on today. The Redeemer, Christ, who redeems, who brings salvation to a restored uh, place and position before God. It is a Redeemer that reconciles fallen relationship, broken relationship between sinner and God. And friends, who is going to bring justice to this world? Who is going to redeem this humanity in its fallen state? In the sinful state of injustice that we've been experiencing for many, many generations. Who will fix that? It is not the government or a political agenda. It isn't a, a movement or any activism. It is Jesus Christ as Redeemer. That is why we come to John 3.16 in reverence and before the Word of God in reverence, knowing that Christ will redeem, that Christ has redeemed fallen humanity and has restored it to Christ. And so as we evaluated the goodness of God in this verse by, by, by showing His plan in action, His sovereign plan in action, and not only a sovereign plan in action, but a sovereign plan birthed from who He is, which is love. And therefore the, the verse says, For God so loved the world. In this way God loved the world. And we've also seen that love expressed and given an action in which He gives this world the exclusive, unique Christ that we studied last week. It is only through Christ that God redeems and saves and wipes away sin. But now, we must come to a profound understanding of the necessity of this cross that our Savior and Lord and Redeemer executes the plan. Many throughout history, we have seen this cross bring contradiction throughout even as, as early as the 16th century during the Reformation period, all the way through the Enlightenment period, and in the 17th century, and in the 18th century, this modern period, and in the 19th century, a postmodern liberal period into what we now see a pluralistic age in the postmodern world. And this, this postmodern pluralistic age asks this of the cross. Is it necessary? Was it really necessary for Christ to die on the cross? Other questions go like this. Could God have saved the world in another way? Or could God forgive sins without atonement? And although we're accustomed to brushing these questions off, they bring a profound reality of what we understand is the cross. And in John 3.16, when we understand that God gives and God places His unique Son inside of redemption history, redemptive history of His people, we have to understand that what was in mind here is a mission of death upon 
a cross. And so to understand the cross, we understand not only the heart of God, but the obedience and the life of Christ as our Redeemer. And so there is a profound necessity to answer these questions. Was the cross necessary? Well, Scripture teaches us it was absolutely necessary. Could God forgive sins without atonement or without sacrifice? The answer to that is no, because it was designed that way. The eradication of sin rested on a redeeming sacrifice of the Son as the Passover lamb, which we will study as we move forward today. So it is important that we evaluate John 3.16 and see that it not only enforces the love of God for the world, it doesn't stop just there. And it doesn't stop in God just sending or giving His Son for salvation, but it is the way that God saves. And He saves by what the problem is, sin. How does God save the world? We don't have God taking humanity off into another and, and, and creating another universe or another world for humanity to live in and that is much better than this one. It, it, he doesn't save it in that kind of aspect. And we're typically used to this uh, understanding of salvation when humanity is in, in a dire state or something uh, a catastrophe is happening upon the world and and we get like the 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 avengers that come in and save the planet or 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 superheroes that come in to save the planet from from something or an immediate danger that is attacking it isn't that way that god saves there isn't anything that is attacking us or there isn't a an immediate danger that is upon the earth what the danger that exists already is sin and it has caused death and so God saves in this way by forgiving sins and the means of forgiveness rests upon death of on the cross expiation or another biblical term atonement or another biblical term propitiation, or another biblical term, sacrifice. It was Christ as sacrifice that we have to get right and understand in order to really get the weight of John 3.16. And so although others have tried to push aside that, what, this, what we see Scripture presenting here of the necessity of the cross is, is known in in theological circles as the penal substitutionary atonement. I know that's just a, a, a big phrase or big words, but in reality, it's very simple to understand. First of all, if we just dissect it in three, penal, the first word, penal substitutionary atonement, the first word emphasizes that there must be a penalty of sin to be paid. Sin has to be accounted for. Now you'll ask yourself, why? What is the necessity of sin being accounted for? Well, that is why we came back and we studied God's goodness and His sovereign purposes as God. And we know that God does not tolerate sin. 
If you want to know a little bit more about that, we, we talked a bit about it a couple weeks ago when we discussed the one of his attributes as being good, and we will discuss this in our further uh, study of the attributes of God starting Thursday night. So stay tuned to that. That's going to be a, one of our big discussions during those weeks. Uh, and, and so there is a necessity to pay for sin. Others say there is no necessity. The Bible teaches us, and we will see that as time goes on, that there is a necessity to pay for sin. A substitution is a fairly simple concept to understand. Christ, as our Redeemer, pays the penalty in our place. So penal, there's a payment to be paid. Substitution, Christ instead of us. And atonement, which is basically Christ offers himself up as a sacrifice in our place as substitution because there was a penalty of sin to be paid. And Christ does that for us. Humanity could not do it for themselves. That's why it is a substitutionary act. Friends, this is very important for us to understand because in other religions, in other faiths, there is a work that needs to be done on our behalf. In the Christian faith and what scripture teaches us is that Christ alone does the work for us. And so that's the beauty of John 3.16. Our Redeemer is our substitute. Our Redeemer redeems. He gives His life for us. He wipes away our sin. I love the way J. Gresham Matchin, a New Testament scholar in the 20th century, one of the founders of the prestigious Princetonian University and part of the theological seminary of, of, of Princeton. And when Princeton started going into its liberal ways, uh, J. Gresham Matchin, along with other, others on staff, uh, separated themselves and, and started a whole other a movement and denomination in the OPC and, and started a new theological seminary called the Westminster Theological Seminary that is still standing now in Philadelphia. And as a New Testament scholar, feeling the backlash of liberalism in his day in the 20th century, stuff that we still feel today, he, he explains the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ with these words. According to, and I quote, according to Christian belief, Jesus is our Savior, not by virtue of what He said, not even by virtue of what He was, but by what He did. He is our Savior, not because He has inspired us to live the same kind of life that He lived, but because He took upon Himself the dreadful guilt of our sins and bore it instead of us on the cross, end quote. You see, it's, it's Christ's redeeming work, and that's why that name is so beautiful, because redemption means that someone has done the work and substitution because He's done the work for us to forgive our sins. So it isn't just an example, as Metchum says. It isn't just something that He said that brings salvation. It is what He did. And friends, He did this for us. And that is why Redeemer, 
the name Redeemer. That is why coming to Christ as our Redeemer brings a profound sentiment of doxology and of understanding that we do not deserve to be here on our own. We do not deserve to be here before God. But because our Redeemer has taken our place and paid the penalty for our sin, that we can do so. And so that brings in us a sense of adoration, a sense of awe and wonder that Christ was to do this for us, for you. The liberal backlash to this is profound. There, is, though, there are those that oppose this understanding of the cross, even though it is clearly taught in Scripture, as you will see. By the middle of the 16th century, during the Reformation period, the reformers like Zwingli, Calvin, and Luther, the magisterial reformers, were, they, they completely separated themselves from the Roman Catholic Church. They, they couldn't reconcile biblical understanding with what the Roman Catholic Church was preaching. And so they established, in a sense, what they didn't, uh, try to do in the first place they were reformers because they wanted to reform the church but when the church didn't want reform they had established their own what we call nowadays denominations it wasn't intentional it was just what happened and so we have uh, denominations like that, that that stem from the reformed branch movement or the lutheran movement and and this was all because the roman catholic church taught something much different than what the reformers understood from Scripture. And they bring us to an understanding of Scripture that solus Christus, that only Christ, Christ alone saves sinners. Christ alone, friends. That is what they screamed. That was one of the, 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 the models of the Reformation. Christ alone saves if you look at our world today who's gonna save us from from this pandemic who's gonna save us from this injustice who's gonna save us from all everything that is wrong in this world christ alone better believe it's not gonna be me you better believe it's not going to be our president. You better believe it's not going to be the, 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 the G12 movement around the world. It, it, it's Christ alone. And that was the motto of the Reformation, and that's why they separated themselves from, from the Roman Catholic Church because the Roman Catholic Church added to that merit and works, stuff that we could do alongside Christ. And that's why people like Luther would say, and I quote, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what must I do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. That was Luther. Calvin says in his Institutes, and I quote, Christ stepped in, took the punishment upon himself, and bore the judgment due to sinners. With his own blood, he expiated the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. We look to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. Hence, Christ is called King of Peace and our peace because he quits 
all agitations, quiets all agitations and conscience. If we ask the means, we must come to sacrifice by which God has been appeased. For anyone unconvinced that God is appeased by the one atonement in which Christ endured his wrath will never cease to tremble. In short, we must seek peace for ourselves solely in the anguish, anguish of Christ our Redeemer. End quote. See, the atonement aspect of this is also very important because there is a penalty, penalty that has to be paid. And who receives that? It's God who needs, who, who in a sense requires this penalty to be paid. It is God. And so, and so therefore the backlash of liberalism is, is why does God need to be appeased? Why is he so angry? Well, this understanding of the reformers came through Scripture, especially when we read the Apostle Paul and the Gospels. The Apostle Paul says in, in, Rome, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. See, that's what the, Paul, the Apostle Paul understood. Christ alone has made us adequate before God. And this is what we claim, and this is what the Reformers were speaking about, because Scripture presented it that way. That, that in order for us to, to stand righteously justified before God, it was something God did for us. Christ redeemed us. Christ did the work alone for us so that we can stand before God. And so therefore, along during the, the period of the Reformation and into the 17th century, many and many uh, Reformed confessions and catechisms like the Heidelberg Catechism and the Geneva Catechism and, and the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith and even the Lutheran Augsburg Confession and, and the, the Book of Concord, all of these began to teach the church that Christ alone saves. And so there might be, for many, uh, this, this kind of antagonistic view on what catechism is, or when we hear the word catechism, we kind of go back to the Roman Catholic days. But what the church during the Reformation period was doing, and, and on, even to this day, was re-educating the church based on Scripture. And so most of these uh, confessions start off with, with highlighting the importance of Scripture alone. And so they just answer questions based off what Scripture is. And so it, it became very important for the church to know that Christ alone saves. How dangerous would it be to live a life of faith thinking that Christ saves alongside of our work? It's our works plus what Christ can do that brings us to salvation because then we merit it. But friends, Scripture does not teach that. So the backlash of liberal theology upon the cross rests in, in, in thinking or what seems unlikely that God would demand such a payment. There's no need for that the liberal movement would say. When these objections arise, it's often because 
they have such a high view of themselves and a very low view of sin. So they often objectify the, the sinner and make him good or her good and the sin not too bad. And so therefore there needs no penalty, penalty to be paid for our sin. So this is the big issue that, that was facing like Jake Gresham Matchin and, and in the 19th and in the 20th century liberalism. And even in today, this, was, this is prevalent. And so we see this play out even in, in, in the historical context of the Reformation. Again, this, we, we have the Reformers saying one thing that Scripture says, Christ alone saves, but then alongside of them, the liberal backlash was already in full effect. Faustus Socinius, who lived during 1539 through 1604, roughly the, the 16th century, during the main period of the Reformation, who was also the founder of Socinianism, taking upon his name, would reject completely what the Reformers preached, especially on penal substitutionary atonement. He rejected that because he had a different understanding of the cross. For Socinius, he not only rejects that, but he also rejects the authority of Scripture, the doctrine of original sin, the divine foreknowledge, and he rejects the deity of Christ. So obviously, if you reject the authority of Scripture, a lot of things will also fall out of place. He rejects the penal substitutionary under, atonement understanding from the Reformers and from what Scripture presents because he finds it unnecessary. It is unnecessary because God can forgive without a payment of sin. It is unjust because the righteous Christ suffers while the guilty are set free. And it is what we hear ring out a lot in our 21st century context, unloving. It is unloving. How can God delight in punishing His Son, the innocent Son? And therefore, this turns God into a monster God. Therefore, the cross is only the highest declaration of love and mercy, according to Socinianism and many of liberal theology, liberal theology proponents. Christ is therefore significant only by example, His obedience and moral life, but not His sacrificial death. Therefore, the cross as a, functioning as a sacrifice for our sins is put out of place. Justice and law are ripped from God because justice and law are now only an expression of God's nature. In a sense, if God chooses to punish, He will do so. If not, He won't. When you do that, you make God unjust because you say that His justice doesn't require a payment for sin. And so for them, God can forgive without atonement and therefore Christ's death becomes unnecessary for justification. This makes God's mercy more than His justice. And remember what we said about the attributes of God? We can't place one above the other. God is just as He is merciful. And so His justice is merciful. His love is merciful. His, his justice is loving and gracious. But people reject that concept. 
and push it to the side. And so our Redeemer becomes demoted to simply a, an example. Friends, God didn't send us a good example to follow, although that's very much true. God sent us a Savior because He would be our Redeemer. Because the gravity of our situation was that we were dead in our sin, the way Paul says. And the only remedy and the only doctor and the only one who can make us alive is Christ. Christ alone. Jesus alone saves. And we come to this conclusion, we come to this understanding of penal substitutionary atonement, not because it's a theological concept, but because that's what Scripture presents. Throughout all of the New Testament, if we do a scriptural analysis, even from the Old Testament, we find that the cross is necessary because it's part of God's unique plan of salvation. And so specifically in the New Testament, we will see five ways this is played out. Five ways we come to an understanding of the cross through what the New Testament presents, which will also include some understanding from the Old. But it's incredible to see that the New Testament in and of itself, it's part one of our understanding of the five steps, is that the New Testament teaches that the cross is demanded by God's righteousness for His eternal plan of redemption. It's the central theme of this New Testament. Why? Because it points us to the work of Christ. See, the, without the cross, what did Christ really do? What, 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 do we, what do we compare Christ to? We can only use Him as exemplary way of moral obedience and of righteous living. But without the cross, Christ then just becomes another prophet to follow and to emulate. But, it, but the cross, being the central theme of the New Testament, brings us to an understanding of fulfillment of His work in which where he forgives sins and provides salvation. So his exemplary nature isn't what provides salvation. It's the cross and his death upon the cross. And so therefore the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, they zoom in on the ministry of Jesus. Mainly, even his last week, of the passion we have so much detail that occurs day by day during the passion week and that takes up a big part of the gospels one writer says that the the gospels are are, are passion narratives with an extended introduction so mainly the concentration of the majority of the gospels of all four basically extend and focus our attention on the passion narrative Everything that comes before that is pointing us in that direction. If you think about it, what details do you and I know about Christ prior to His ministry work? Even prior to those last 
three years of ministry, we have about one or two stories that talk to us about Christ as a, as a, as a young child. But that's basically it. We don't know who, how he was as an infant. We don't know how he was as a teenager. We don't know how he was in his early 20s. We have a zoomed-in focus attention on his ministerial work that is accomplished at the cross. And so therefore, it's a central theme to the New Testament. You take the cross out of the New Testament, and you, what do you have? Just have a bunch of writing with no power. So people like the apostles, for instance, Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter says, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used the lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Later in chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, In this way God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Paul says the same thing. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, he goes into a lot of detail, but verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to, to us who are being saved. In chapter 2 verse 1, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with the brilliance of speech or wisdom. And then he goes on in verse 2, to preach on the cross. The preaching of the apostles and the preaching of the New Testament is the cross. Where the preachers of the New Testament get their power is pointing people back to the cross. And so therefore Peter would say, repent and, and, and believe. And, 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 and Paul has this wonderful sermon in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he goes on extended verses preaching about the cross of Christ. That was the subject and that was the, the power that the, that the reformers of Jesus' time were doing. They were bringing in a reformation of the cross an understanding of the cross as the power of salvation. And Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, it's the power. It is power. So the cross becomes fundamental in the New Testament and fundamental to our understanding of salvation. It is necessary as God's divine plan. But not only the apostles understood this, Jesus himself understands the cross as a central work for his mission, as the central purpose for his mission. That's why he calls himself the Son of Man. From Daniel chapter 7, which speaks on one who will usher in an everlasting kingdom and one that whose kingdom will not be destroyed. This is who Jesus says he is. He also predicts in Mark chapter 2 verse 20 that he, that the bridegroom would be taken away. And this taken away implies punishment and suffering. He also compares himself in Matthew chapter 12 verse 40 to Jonah. And the serpent of Moses as we read in John 3 14. 
that he must be lifted up. He also speaks to his disciples about his death in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. And after his resurrection, when he is seen, he says in Luke 24, 26, Jesus says, Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? In verse 44 of the same chapter, he says, He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In verse 46, he says, He also said to them, This is what is written, The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And verse 47, And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus understood the cross as fundamental to His mission and purpose. And He didn't run away from it. He felt it, it hurt him, he understood it, but he proclaimed it because he understood that the cross was God's plan to bring many sons to glory, to bring forgiveness to many. Number two, or another aspect of the New Testament teaching on the cross and its necessity is found in the Last Supper ordeal. In Matthew chapter 26, we, 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 we see this, uh, the Lord's supper, supper play out. And the words of Jesus Christ at the Lord's Supper present us with Him understanding that the Last Supper is a Passover meal. As they celebrate the Passover meal, Jesus understands that this Passover meal is a representation of what? His sacrifice will mean. And that's why the language of, of, of the Passover meal, in, in, especially in Jesus' mouth, is, is sacrificial. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. And so as they sat together at the table, Jesus was showing them that the Passover meal that they ate at that moment was really hinting or a shadow of what was going to happen at the cross. This Passover meal also implied the priestly sacrifice through an obedient son to the Father. And the substitutionary blood sacrifice that we see in the Passover is, is linked to the deliverance of Israel as God's covenant people. Think about it. The tenth plague in Israel and in Egypt was speaking on the deliverance of, of the people through a sacrifice of blood. And so the people would have to put blood on their doorstep so that they could avoid God's wrath and be delivered, be saved. They were saved from God's wrath by the blood of the Lamb. And it also implied a payment for sin because judgment was both over Israel and over Egypt. And so those who did not have the blood over their doorpost would receive this coming judgment. So the Passover more than demonstrates God's love and saying this is for you and in sharing this meal for them, it, it shows that the blood 
that will be spilled will avert the judgment of God over the people. So you get to understand this when you read Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. I will pass through the land of Egypt on the night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this blood redeems the people of God. It is a priestly sacrifice that inaugurates a new covenant. So at the Passover meal, at the Lord's Supper, what he is really doing is ushering in or hinting towards his death as being the moment of a new covenant. The sacrifice that he will do will complete the forgiveness of sins. That's why there is no more sacrifices that need to be done. According to Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34, this one, this covenant, fulfills it. It wipes away sin. Jesus does the work. The old covenant is based on a Levitical priesthood and on a Levitical system of sacrifice. When Jesus comes, he fulfills it, and he also ushers in a new priesthood because the old covenant required a Levite to do the sacrificing. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, a new covenant, a change in priesthood requires a change in covenant. And that's why the sacrifice of Christ is all sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. And because Christ has forgiven sins, there is this wonderful moment of understanding that God now dwells with His people. So friends, this and other aspects, we, we didn't have time to speak on His, his ag- agonizing moments in Gethsemane, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He's crying out in distress relating towards us. Or the fourth point where, where we see that He gets tried unjustly before, before Herod and Pilate. Or, or, or the moment that He cries out on the cross. We'll end it here. At the cross, he cries out and he offers himself up as a sacrifice. This sacrifice we see in John chapter 19, verse 30, that when he hangs on the cross, he ushers in a victorious claim. See, victory came at the cross. What Jesus did on the cross was victorious. This in the face of death being considered a penalty of sin, according to Genesis 2, 18. Or death on the cross meaning a curse, as Deuteronomy 27, 26 says. What the cross does in Jesus' time and what he does on the cross is victorious because at the cross he accomplishes the payment for human sin. And that's why these cries of agony bring weight bring the weight of sin into consideration because Jesus is bearing the sin of the world his first cry 
represents the plan of God or recognizes the plan of God. And that's why Jesus cries out, Eloi, or Father. He's crying out to his Father at that very moment under the burden and the pressure of the world's sin. But the second cry is what we've based our life upon. The second cry is, it is finished, according to John 19, 30. It has been accomplished. It's not halfway done. Salvation was not almost provided or potentially provided. It was accomplished. And so on the cross, Jesus becomes victorious. He is not a victim of some monster God. He is a victor. He is not an abused child that hangs on the cross. He is a mature adult and sovereign Lord ushering in the forgiveness of sins. Your sin, my sin, and friends, the sin of this nation and the injustice of this nation are forgiven only by the blood of the Lamb, only through Jesus Christ. And that is why we can say only Jesus saves.